You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. We gotta live on science Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer and Dr. Andrea Love. And this week, we are going to tackle um, some controversial therapies um, for musculoskeletal issues. But as we'll discuss, a lot of the claims for these therapies go far beyond musculoskeletal relief. We're talking about cupping and dry needling. And this week is sort of related to last week. So if you didn't listen to last week's episode, it was, does acupuncture get the jab done? And P.S. We are so proud of our podcast titles. <laughs> we put so much thought into them. You guys have no idea. But we'll, we'll kick things off with a discussion distinguishing dry needling from acupuncture. And, and really, I learned a lot while researching these topics for today's episode. And Andrea, as an athlete, has exposure to these topics because they're popular among, I guess, runners and athletes in general. So we'll get into it. Before we do, Andrea, can we just take a breath and sort of acknowledge that it's December 12th and our lives are... A little chaotic right now, and uh, I, I don't even know. I just need to acknowledge the uh, just sort of the, the chaos that is our lives, and I'm so proud of us for getting it together and recording this episode. We have so much going on in our work lives, our personal lives, professional lives. Andrea's cat just peed on her desk. I mean, it just... <laughs> It's, I, I mean, honestly, I really, like I said, I think it's the perfect metaphor for, for December. It really um, is. Anyway, Andrea, can you sort of set the stage here? Why are we talking about these alternative practices? And, you know, what is the discussion like in the athletic community? Yeah. So, I mean, I think just like acupuncture, which we discussed last week, you know, a lot of these alternative practices have been gaining traction in the U.S. and, and elsewhere through pop culture. So particularly when we talk about things like cupping and dry needling, these have become mainstreamed by elite professional Olympic level athletes. And I think, you know, for me in particular, there's there's a very striking kind of timeline where I remembered during the Summer Olympics in 2016, where we saw, you know, Michael Phelps covered in these circular bruises all over his back. And that was really kind of what brought cupping into the forefront of mainstream, you know, therapeutic remedies. And it's not limited to that, you know. I'm obviously not an elite runner, but I do run quite a bit, and I've run several. You're an elite runner. <laughs> no. You I are mean... an elite runner. <laughs> You are. What is an elite runner? Well, You're running you know, marathons. <laughs> no, but but someone that is winning races. Um, okay, okay. But professional runners or whatever, you know. But I think one of the challenges is, you know, social media almost not gives us a level playing field, but gives us a window into the lives of elites or professional athletes. And we often see these athletes promoting a variety of 
practices, whether it be if you saw a recent Post and Substack article about biohacking, including um, at-home tests like Inside Tracker that's very heavily promoted by a lot of runners, or things like cupping or, or dry needling, or even things like kinesiology tape, which which we do pr- plan to cover in the future. But but it becomes you know oh well this professional athlete is doing it maybe I should do it maybe maybe it's good for some reason and and we'll talk about this more later. But I think it's really important to remember that professional athletes are not scientists per se. And and unfortunately, you know, because of the public window into these these folks' lives, a lot of practices that are not necessarily evidence-based get mainstreamed. So, I mean, I think a good place to start is a discussion. How is dry needling different from acupuncture? And, and b- before we get in there, Andrew, we actually, we did a post on dry needling. We did. Um, was it did. early this summer? I can't remember when yeah, it was, exactly. Yeah, it was a few months ago. And, and of course, you know, a lot of the topics that we end up covering are because people have questions about it, because it's gaining popularity within a certain community because, you know, a lot of these things are out-of-pocket services and people are wondering, you know, someone recommended this to me, is it really worth it? And so, you know, we figured because we actually did cover acupuncture, including dry needling in our discussion of some of these other alternative kind of practices that have become mainstream just just was a logical next step. Well, and and that post was, I was shocked how controversial (laughs) that post was. People came in hot in our, you know, comment section and our DMs. There was a very large, popular dry needling company that really (laughs) took issue with our post and blasted us and then sort of, you know, told their followers to to, to come uh, inundate our post with comments, which they did. So today, Today, we're, we're going to, to take a look again at that evidence. I think we have some really strong key takeaways. We did a deep dive into the available evidence, so we'll talk about the quality of scientific studies, and that matters because people, I mean, we this goes for any topic we cover, right, Andrea? You know, they'll, mm-hmm. they'll just type something into PubMed, and there'll be an article, and they'll send it, but that doesn't mean that it's a high-quality study, you know? So we're, we're really appraising what is the quality level of this study? You know, can we trust it? Is Are these findings valid and reliable? And anyway, so, all right, Andrea, what is the difference between acupuncture and dry needling? So some people kind of lump them in the same category, and, and you'll probably note that folks who are considered themselves to be acupuncturists do not like to be lumped into the same category. So both acupuncture and dry needling use thin monofilament needles to penetrate the skin. The major difference here is that acupuncture, the locations of where the needles are inserted into the skin are along those those meridians that link the qi, the vital energy that we discussed in regards to traditional Chinese medicine. And by inserting needles into various regions along these supposed meridians, it can help restore balance or energy balance to folks who are experiencing whatever the reported symptoms have to be. In contrast, dry needling is inserting needles in supposed regions where what we call trigger points have been identified into the muscles. And so... This term also has a little controversy. So the term myofascial trigger point relates to a region within 
the muscle and the fascia. So the fascia is the connective tissue that kind of encases muscle within different muscular regions or muscular chains on the body. And even this term trigger point, it's really not conclusive as to whether or not these trigger points are a real thing. But for the sake of this discussion, we will say that, you know, they are, a trigger point is something that relates to a a pain that's related to a very discrete or irritable point within a skeletal muscle or region of fascia that's not caused by a a physical injury or a trauma or a wound. Typically, you can feel, you can palpate and you can feel, you know, what we call it, a tightness or something like that. And sometimes you can uh, elicit a twitch response when you, when you stimulate or when you palpate it. And also palpate palpating that region will also reproduce or replicate the the person's pain response. And and often you can feel some nerve pain. So for the sake of discussion, we'll say that this is what a a myofascial trigger point happens to be. So dry needling basically uses these microfilament needles, inserts them into these supposed myofascial trigger point regions within a given muscle, and, and supposedly using leaving those needles in for a period of time will help to release those muscles or those trigger points. And so it's two very different principles in terms of how they're implemented, um, but they do relate to using the same sort of microfilament needles. Okay, so I can we, I mean, I know there's a lot we want to say, but can we sort of just jump to the punchline here and, and talk about the quality of evidence, which is basically there are very, very few well-designed studies that have evaluated the therapeutic benefit of dry needling in treating musculoskeletal pain. And I remember when we did this post, people were sending us dozens and dozens of links to studies, but sample size was incredibly small. There weren't adequate control groups. There was bias in the studies. So you can't use these as credible evidence of their benefit, right? And so, you know, there are several meta-analyses that have collated the available data out there. And of course, we'll link these in our show notes. And they concluded that dry needling has no benefit compared to standard physical therapy treatments for functional outcomes. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the TLDR. You know, again, a lot of the the data, they're very low quality, meaning that, you know, there's, as just mentioned, there are flaws in the study design. The evidence that does exist to show a benefit is really only in the immediate follow-up period following dry needling. So in the first couple of weeks, some people report that pain sensation is reduced and things like that. When you look more long-term data, there's very limited evidence that long-term outcomes are going to improve functionally or even subjectively with regard to pain. There's also some evidence with animal studies that suggest that dry needling can actually lead to nerve and muscular damage because, of course, we are inserting needles into muscular and nerve regions, um, you know, within the body. So speaking of some of the harms, I know, and I'm looking, obviously, we always say we prepare um, quite a bit of research for these episodes. I I see that you put together a list of potential adverse events. Mm -hmm. Can we talk through those? The obvious adverse events are typically related to the trauma of inserting a needle inappropriately. Um, So, of course, bleeding, bruising, um, Um, Obviously, if you're inserting a needle into an area where you're already experiencing pain, so regions that are pretty common for runners would include things like the glutes and the hamstrings, Um, you can aggravate those symptoms. You can 
exacerbate pain or you could lead to new pain. Some people also experience other sorts of adverse events that that could be somewhat psychosomatic, but includes things like loss of consciousness, drowsiness, headaches, nausea. And of course, there also are more serious adverse events, such as potential pneumothorax, which we discussed during the acupuncture episode. So those needles could inadvertently puncture a lung and cause a collapsed lung. It could also lead to cardiac issues where uh, in rare events you could puncture a, a major blood vessel or even the heart itself. I do think, you know, the the risk of these adverse events is relatively low, but it's certainly not no risk. Right. And some of the risks, as you said, they can be significant and serious. So, you know, typically the, you know, they're, these are rare, but there's an an article I'll have to um, link. We'll have to link in our show notes. And they were talking actually specifically about acupuncture. And I know that we're distinguishing between acupuncture and dry needling here, but I think it's still relevant that the complications can typically be classified into four categories, dermatologic. And there are so many things I cannot pronounce here, but Factitial paniculitis, perigo, pigmentosa, which sounds like Libgaudium leviosa from Harry Potter. Um, all kinds of things. Let's see, mycobacterium infection, cutaneous herpes, trauma, as you said, pneumothorax, hemothorax, cardiac tamponade, deep vein thrombosis, pseudoaneurysm, infection, which you mentioned, hepatitis B, HIV, meningitis, and others, and then miscellaneous events such as collapse, seizure, and asthma exacerbation. Again, these are very rare, but, you know, we just want to be transparent here. So who can do dry needling? What's the training like for this? It's the Wild West, mostly. Most people that you're going to see that are going to perform dry needling would be physical therapists. So physical therapists do have a three-year doctoral degree, a doctoral in physical therapy. Dry needling is not a standard part of training for that degree, but typically this is going to be some sort of, you know, external or exterior training. But unfortunately, regulations are very uneven. It's typically sometimes included in the scope of practice for physical therapists, sometimes not. Um, There are 37 states and District of Columbia that permit physical therapists to perform dry needling. Well, post the list, of course. There are five states that prohibit physical therapists from performing dry needling. Those include California, Hawaii, New York, Oregon, and Washington. And there are eight states that are silent with regard to the legal ramifications on physical therapists performing dry needling. And so that's going to be kind of an opt-in, opt-out situation. And that actually includes my current state, Pennsylvania. And it is a common practice for certain physical therapists to offer dry needling. The certifications are, are pretty much conducted by you know, companies that have a vested interest in promoting dry needling. And then, you know, a physical therapist will have uh, some sort of certification to say that they've been, you know, trained in this practice. But again, it's the Wild West and there's really no standardization in terms of the training and even the certification. So the TLDR is, as you just said, not a whole lot of standardization or training of folks who are doing this, who are doing dry needling. There's some, some evidence that maybe it could help with some musculoskeletal pain in the in the short term. There's no evidence to support any long-term benefit. Um, really, the quality of research on this topic is, is lacking 
hacking and this costs money. So there's not a whole lot of benefit. You know, there are risks. Yes, the risks are typically low and severe, you know, adverse events are rare. Um, but, you know, I, I guess some people resort to this. We've talked about this in, you know, in other episodes when they feel like they're out of options. Um, but again, you know, we wish there were better data to support it, but it just does not exist at this time. Yeah. And I think, again, it's important to, to underscore, um, you know, the placebo effect here because the data that do exist, you know, a lot of times the outcomes, there's no difference between dry needling and, and the sham dry needling, which again is, you know, inserting a needle or a retractable needle into a region that's irrelevant um, to where the pain is is being reported. And, and so again, you know, it could just be the simple act or the simple thought that you're having something beneficial done to you that that allows you to report uh, a decline in pain or pain sensation. I would pay a lot of money to just lay on a table <laughs> in a quiet room for an hour away from my kids and have someone touch my body. So, I mean, I get it. All right, Andrea, we have to move on to cupping. I honestly, I <laughs> you had feel, no idea. You had no I, idea. I, no, I really didn't. And it feels at first I thought I was being punked. Like it feels like a medieval, uh, you know, something out of a medieval uh, medical textbook or something. And please, I just I, I feel like we always get accused of, of sounding condescending. It's uh, we're not being condescending. We, we scoured the Internet um, for credible evidence and scientific studies and data um, so that that. That is what we'll present to you. We're not trying to be condescending. So dry needling was kind of born out of acupuncture in the 1980s as like a modernized version of acupuncture targeted towards musculoskeletal pain. But cupping really is a medieval or even even older and ancient practice. It's dated well into the BCE era. Very early Egyptian, Asian medical practices. There are documented instances of cupping um, throughout human history. And there's something called dry cupping and wet cupping. You, yes. you, uh, wet cupping traumatized me. It's basically bloodletting. Andrea, can you sort of walk us through what these things are? And there's also something called fire cupping, and I'll maybe dis- discuss that very briefly. But basically, cupping very broadly relates to applying suction on the skin using cups. And so historically, these cups were heated and then applied to the skin. And as they cool, Um, The change in pressure and the change in temperature sucked the skin into the cup. Wet cupping utilizes the same practice, but they also kind of lacerate the skin with, you know, make a cut in the skin. So when the skin is sucked, you also suck blood. Um, That's why it's called wet cupping. Fire cupping typically involves the uh, lighting of a cotton ball or or cloth on fire using alcohol, which is very flammable, and also placing that inside the cup where it's on the skin. Nowadays, there are alternative cupping cups where instead of heating them, they actually have like a valve that you can pull kind of like those air sealers that you use on wine bottles. So instead of heating it, you can actually just suck the skin using a vacuum plug. Um, But basically, you're sucking the skin into the cup on multiple places around the body. This is done for a period of of several minutes. And the purported mechanism is that, you know, this this suction is going to alleviate a a wide variety of ailments. That list is a long list. So people say that it could benefit or improve fevers, chronic low back pain, poor appetite, indigestion, high blood pressure, acne, 
acne, atopic dermatitis, psoriasis, anemia, stroke rehabilitation, nasal congestion, infertility, and menstrual period cramping. I have to read this. This is a direct direct (laughs) quote. I'm sorry. I have to. From the Goop website, and we will link to this. This is a direct quote. By creating the suction and negative pressure, cupping is used to drain excess fluids and toxins, loosen adhesions, and lift connective tissue, bring blood flow to stagnant skin and muscles, and stimulate the peripheral nervous system. Indications include but are not exclusive to the common cold with cough, asthma, headache, dizziness, and digestive disorders. It is a veritable panacea for what ails you. Most patients find the experience pleasant, although they may be left with localized discoloration that will fade and disappear within a few days up to a week. Curiously, cupping doesn't always leave a mark, diagnostically supporting that there is no stagnation in that area. Um, okay. I need, I need to say go, things about go, this. Go, Get in there. So none of that is true. Let, let's just be clear. So the, the general claims about cupping practitioners are that it improves blood flow, it releases toxins, it releases stagnant blood, it helps circulate the vital energy or the chi. Some people also claim that it balances the hormones and improves the lymphatic system and more. And let's just set set the record straight it creates a hickey, basically. So you create suction, which leads to swelling, and that breaks the capillaries in the skin, which are small blood vessels, which then leads to a blood clot, which creates a bruise. So literally, cupping does the opposite of improving blood flow because it creates a bruise, which by definition is a blood clot. So There's no evidence that cupping does anything beyond leading to bruising and discoloration at the location where a cup was placed. Mm -hmm. So, Andrea, there's that amazing piece from The Atlantic. Do you remember the time? Obviously, we'll link to it in our show stories. It was a a science writer who was calling out the, the widespread mainstream phenomenon after Michael Phelps was walking around at the Olympics, you know, with all of his cup bruises. Right. You, you guys have to read this article. And actually, I think I, I pulled some quotes from it that I want to read later. But um, so we looked at the data and really there's just not much there. Um, a, a big issue as, as we sort of, I feel like I'm a broken record here, small sample size, tons of bias, um, in particular for cupping, um, difficulty creating a control, you know, that, that will allow for blinding. So there was this systematic review, this is in 2011 in the Journal of Acupuncture and Meridian studies that concluded the effectiveness of cupping is currently not well documented for most conditions. The only condition that any studies show a benefit is with pain. And those reviews were based on poor quality primary studies. And even for this indication, doubts remain. Yeah. So another thing, you know, I want to maybe talk a little bit about because, you know, we do have, you know, these meta-analyses that we'll summarize. But, you know, one of the biggest issues is that there's no physiological plausibility in how this cupping would actually help alleviate any of these conditions that it 
purports to alleviate. You know, some claims suggest that, oh, well, you're causing a bruise, you're causing a wound that's going to lead to an immune response. That's not going to be the case because a bruise, the only wound response that's going to be involved there is localized, superficial wound healing in order to clear the blood clot, which is the bruise itself. You're not going to lead to some sort of systemic improvement in immune system function. You're not going to cure infectious diseases or alleviate infectious disease symptoms. And even as just mentioned, you know, some folks couple cupping with a massage, and that's a very common practice at massage studios now where they're like, hey, add cupping to your service for $80. There's no evidence really that it's going to help with any musculoskeletal pain either. Remember, this is superficial suction of the skin. You're not getting into any sort of musculature here. Mm-hmm. Now, something, and I know we, we, there's so much we want to say, and again, we'll link to those systematic reviews, but really it's sort of the same old, you know, refrain over and over again, that there is no, ab, there did not, does not exist a high quality study that shows benefit of cupping. And perhaps, you know, some small benefit in the short term for pain. But as Andrea just said, you know, a lot of that is either placebo, but people get very upset when we say that because, you know, it sort of implies, oh, it's, you know, it's all in your head. But again, as Andrea just said, if you're lying on a table, someone is touching your body and you're in a quiet room for an hour, it's not all that unexpected that maybe you'll feel a little bit better um, at the end of that hour. But something I really want to talk about, and I, I hope this doesn't derail us, but, you know, we talk a lot about logical fallacies and we talk a lot about the appeal to nature fallacy, but there's another, and maybe there's a name for this that that you know, Andrea, but it's like an appeal to traditions. And I feel like that is what's happening here with cupping. And the Atlantic article does such a nice job summarizing it. They say, what takes this self-injury with unclear ends from psychopathology to hip trend is the fact of it being an ancient Chinese therapy. Those aren't dismissive skeptical quotations, because they have that around ancient Chinese therapy. People in China have indeed been doing it for centuries. It's just a restatement of the common buzz phrase that is integral to the appeal of the practice. Something about the oldness and the non-Westernness gives it some enduring anti-establishment cred. I, I don't you feel like that's yeah. right? You know, it's very pervasive. I want to talk a little bit about that in the context of all of these public figures promoting it because, you know, it becomes mainstream and it becomes, you know, that this this really old habit is now all of a sudden popular, but it doesn't mean that it's effective. You know, mm-hmm. it, it gives it it gives it credibility because you see all these people in pop culture, whether they're simply a celebrity or whether they're a celebrity athlete or things like that. And it exacerbates the rejection of science in in many ways, because now it's like, well, why aren't these athletes utilizing evidence based practices? Why are they now utilizing that? And actually, a quote that struck me from that same piece was So in terms of, because they talked a little bit about in the piece that, you know, Michael Phelps smoked pod and that was a whole scandal, right? But the author makes the statement or the position that in terms of role model behavior, cupping may actually be more deleterious than a grainy bong photo because it invites people to distrust science. Because now you have this person who is revered as this phenomenal athlete, world record-breaking athlete, who is doing things that 
literally fly in the face of evidence-based practices. And this is not entirely benign, right? Correct. There, there are some risks. Do you want to talk about some of the risks? There are the obvious, right? Blood clots, persistent skin discoloration. There's the risk that those bruises will not heal properly. If you're doing wet cupping, you can have scars, you can have infections. If you're doing traditional cupping with heated cups, there are risks of burns. Um, for some individuals, it may worsen skin conditions. It's not going to cure your acne, but it may worsen things like eczema or psoriasis. It can also lead to persistent skin issues with your capillaries because you are rupturing those blood vessels. It can also lead to other sorts of systemic issues, including uh, issues with blood pressure, particularly for pregnant women or people who have pre-existing conditions. Of course, it can also lead to persistent pain, additional bruising. So, you know, this is not benign. And I think another issue here is, of course, this is an out-of-pocket service. People are typically getting this at a massage facility. There is no certification involved or required mm -hmm. to practice cupping. So you have people that are not trained in a non-evidence-based practice who are going to be applying this service to you with almost no regulation. And coupled with that, I, I hope people realize this is an industry. It's a multi-billion dollar industry that is gaining traction every year. And people are paying out of pocket. I saw some estimates of $30 to $80 per treatment or $50 to $100 per treatment, which in the context of what folks pay for other treatments doesn't seem like a lot. But some people get this done on a regular basis, either weekly or monthly, and those things add up. And, and as Andrea just said, there's no certification required. And so I guess, so you do need a license to, I guess, literally put your hands on a client um, in nearly all states. So most people will get licensed as a massage therapist or folks who are already licensed as massage therapist, um, acupuncturist, or other type of li license provider, they can practice this. But it's the Wild West. Beyond that, you know, the claims that they're making, you know, these, these, these statements of like detoxifying it, again, it's just giving credibility to this field of pseudoscience. You know, you're not detoxifying by sucking on someone's skin. You have a liver, you have kidneys, you have your respiratory system that does your detoxification for you. All of these things, whether it is your diuretic tea or cupping, you're not detoxifying your body. You're not improving your health through any of these practices. And, you know, it cultivates this resistance to actually listening to trained professionals. So just super quickly, because I know people love when we, you know, walk through the actual data and we'll link to all of these. Um, there was a systematic review in 2014 that concluded that the evidence supporting cupping has resulted from unreasonable design and poor research quality. A 2015 review found that cupping might provide some relief for chronic neck or back pain, but the quality of evidence was too limited to draw firm conclusions. We could go on and on, but I just, I'm anticipating folks sending us um, some links. So we'll make sure to link to these reviews. I know we, we want to wrap up soon. I just, I want to go back to this idea that this is so popularized now, right? And, and mm -hmm. the implications of pop culture icons utilizing these practices. There was on that same Goop site that we'll link to, here's a quote, and it just, it's all so romanticized. It says, about five years years ago, Gwyneth attended a premiere in a back
backless gown that sent tongues wagging. It wasn't the designer of the dress that viewers were discussing, but rather they were ogling the collection of symmetrical purple dots that graced the skin of her back. The marks of Gwyneth were a sign of cupping and sent a flurry of photographs around the globe and even prompted her friend Oprah Winfrey to explore this ancient practice on her show. And Andrea, there were, and I know you, you sort of talked about this, but when you see these articles in, you know, pop culture, pop media, they throw around terms that sound so scientific, but they're really, they're nonsensical. So I, I just, I saw there were some theories being thrown around to explain the quote unquote effects produced by cupping. And so they'll say things like the pain gate theory, diffuse noxious inhibitory controls, reflex zone theory, nitric oxide theory, activation of immune system, blood detoxification theory. But you know, and, and people will understandably fall prey to these things, yes. right? Because they sound scientific. Yep. That's the danger of pseudoscience in and of itself, is they use these vaguely science-sounding words or something that maybe has a nugget of truth in a completely unrelated and irrelevant topic, like nitric oxide is something that our bodies produce that is involved in muscle relaxation. But now you're completely creating a false term, making a theory that doesn't actually exist to try and sell a product with no data behind it. All right, Andrea, any final thoughts before you take us home? I just, I want to underscore the fact that, you know, the frustration that we express about these sorts of practices and the fact that they've become mainstream has is not directed at our listeners. It's directed toward people that should know better, you know, experts or clinicians that are doing this on the entirety of Team USA during the Olympics, which is a huge disservice and was called out by several, you know, reputable other clinicians. Um, or it's, you know, directed at individuals or companies that promote these sorts of non-evidence-based things. And our goal here is to, you know, get you to understand that anecdotes are not indicative of evidence and understand that, you know, anybody can cherry pick a study, a singular piece of information that supports a belief, but that's not what the body of evidence is necessarily saying. All right, folks, I hope you learned a thing or two. Be wary when you're seeing these outlandish claims about detoxification or curing this whole litany of ailments that have no relevance to each other because those are often red flags for pseudoscience. If you want more unbiased science, please check out our Substack subscription. We do post extended content there, and we respond to questions and comments from our subscribers. You will have a direct line to me and Jess, including access to our private Facebook group, monthly live Q&As, and you get to vote on future podcast episode topics. Check out our paid subscription. It's $5 a month at theunbiasedscipod.substack.com. Next episode is our last before the holidays, and we're going to do a 12 days of science roundup of some of the science and health-related evidence-based info we wish everyone knew. This will be our last episode of 2022. We will restart early in the new year, so you don't want to miss it. We will continue to provide updates on COVID-19, RSV, influenza, and lots of other topics on our social media accounts. So be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Unbiased SciPod. Catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no nonsense, just science. Yeah. Oh.
I am a 